The following is an episode of The Cinephiles Club, originally airing on BEFM Radio in Busan, South Korea, as part of the weekend program Cine Concerto. How's it going today? It's going pretty well. How about you? Yeah, doing well. Thanks. Doing well. Um, you know, had a pleasant Chuseok week, Chuseok weekend, I suppose, last uh, last week, and continuing on with a nice three-day weekend, so it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a great time of year. I love October. Yeah. And, and you know, Halloween is just around the corner. I know. That's crazy. It is. Nuts. I love this month because, you know, it's changing season. It gets a little bit cooler out. The falling leaves are always nice. And then with Halloween around the corner, I always feel like it's a it's a great time to get into horror. Yeah. I just love the horror genre. I do, too. I do, too. And there's a lot of, you know, we've talked endlessly on this show about all the good stuff going on in horror these days. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many great horror films and, and a lot of horror films that have become quite popular. I mean, The Conjuring, of course, but mm-hmm. then you have Hereditary, you have The It reboot you have mm-hmm. the witch you have horror movies both big and small i mean korea has the wailing or or gok song yep. which was a big hit internationally and you know speaking of korea i did some digging according to the film data analyst steven follows audiences in south korea are amongst the biggest horror fans in the world oh no kidding yeah okay. Which, you know, being based in Korea, it's it's interesting to see this genre in particular do so well here. That's interesting. That's, I don't remember off the top of my head about the box office success of movies like Hereditary and, and Midsommar, but they certainly do stick around for a while. They do, and I know the more popular franchise films like It, for example, I think did quite well yeah, here. Yeah, it did. Uh, Halloween, the Halloween reboot did fairly well too. So I just wanted to ask you before we get deeper into this topic, why do you think the horror genre has endured so well? And why do you think the genre is so popular in Korea in particular? Oh, well, I mean, the genre has endured well, I think, because I think horror, good horror, can can really speak to you because of the strong metaphor in that it is always something that's in the back of your mind, the thing that you fear most, right? Mm. Even if it's kind of on a subconscious level. And it's kind of similar as to why so many children's movies involve, you know, the main characters becoming orphaned, right? It's just something that, that a child can really understand, you know, this is really scary, right? And it's something that I think adults can really, can really get too. Um, when they, when it comes to watching horror movies, uh, whether it's like a breakup film and, or something like in the case of Midsommar or something like right. that or any other sort of metaphor. And I think that's something that, that is why it's really endured so well. Um, as to why it's popular in Korea, I mean, I think Korea in general, I mean, they're just a really big movie going community as well, especially yeah. here in Busan. I think people can just appreciate what a good movie is. Yeah, for sure. I think the horror genre is a great sort of vehicle for expressing social anxieties, Mm -hmm. for expressing unconscious fears. Mm -hmm. And I think in Korea, maybe because there aren't as many avenues for doing that in other genres, Mm -hmm. I think it's it's appreciated more as the one sort of genre that can dig deep. That and the thriller genre, I think, that can dig deep and kind of explore a lot of social ills, a lot of anxiety that's floating in the air. 
So while there's a lot of great moments in the history of the horror genre, I mean, you have the early silent greats like Nosferatu, you have classic monster films like Frankenstein, Godzilla, you have uh, the pioneering work of Alfred Hitchcock with The Birds and Psycho and others. But I wanted to focus on a particularly exciting decade in horror, which is the 1970s. Mm, Okay. Uh, I mean, the 60s had a lot of great original new horror movies. You have Hitchcock's Psycho, you have Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, you have George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, you have Masaki Kobayashi's Kwai Dan, to name a few. But I think the 70s marked the first time that the horror genre truly captured the zeitgeist of its time. Yeah. It was the one kind of zeitgeist genre of the 70s, more so than any other. Zeitgeist is sort of like the thing that's on everybody's mind. Right. The spirit of the times. The spirit of the times, yeah. And, you know, think about what was happening in the 70s. It was a period of incredible anxiety and uh, instability in the world. I mean, you have the Vietnam War, you have Watergate, you have the massive decline in trust in public institutions. <laughs> and it's also the big come down from the, the hippie love 60s and like all the ro- big rock stars were dying because of drugs and stuff. Well, yeah, that, that plays into the breakdown of the family and yeah. religion. And, you know, there is this emergent counterculture that's, I guess, less sort of uh, lovey-dovey mm. and less kind of polished and, and, you know, peace-loving than it was in the 60s. In the 70s, it takes on more of an edge, I think, both in the protest movements of the time and, you know, just a lot of runaways and stuff like that, communes. You also have rising crime rates, a, a global oil crisis, and in the U.S., the worst economic decline since the Great Depression. Right, and that would really be represented in New York, New York City as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the effects of the economic distress in particular was what's, uh, it was captured in what was called a misery index, which is mm-hmm. just, a, a you know, kind of measuring the effect that economic decline and other factors have on people's mental condition and, and their physical condition as well. And it kind of skyrocketed in the 70s, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people began to think that the world was literally ending. I mean, the best-selling book of the 1970s in America was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, <laughs> which basically predicted that the the world was going to end soon. It looked at a lot of, like, Christian prophecy and mm, stuff like that. Right. And at the same time that all this sort of social and economic instability was happening, censorship rules in Hollywood were loosening. So, you know, the horror genre was allowed to take on this increasingly violent, bloody, and realistic film aesthetic. So I think looking back at the 70s, in many ways, it resembles our own time. Yeah, it's almost like, do you want to be in a decade where horror is a in genre? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, looking at today, it makes sense that horror would have this great you know, reemergence or, or resurgence right, in popularity right. because we're also going through a time where there's this huge counterculture. There's so much instability in the world. There's there's economic decline. Mm. Uh, there's all these factors that mirror a lot of the things that were going on in the 70s. Yeah. As well as just like a massive rise of distrust in certain parts of the world, a loosening of social bonds, a fraying of the social fabric. Yeah. And it makes sense that, like the 70s, horror would be the genre to kind of capture the essence of of this time. So I thought 
it would be instructive to go back to the 70s and take a look at the great horror movies of that decade and just kind of, I guess, you know, explore them. Uh, we're, we're talking about movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, Jaws, Alien, Suspiria, The Wicker Man, Dine of the Dead, The Tenet. Yeah. The list goes These on and on. Yeah. yeah. And um, it really is just such an exciting time. And, and I thought maybe we could learn something from it. What's the first horror movie you want to talk about? Well, this one is a classic, but we're going to try to re-examine it from a slightly different angle today. I'm talking about The Exorcist by William Friedkin. 1973. Mm, yeah. Now, of course... This is one that was on Korean TV not that long ago. Oh, really? Yeah, I, 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 I watched part of it. it Interesting. On, it's just on TV. Yeah. Wow. Okay, <laughs> well, that's that's cool. Yeah. Uh, this is actually about a young girl who becomes possessed by a demon and must be exorcised by a priest. And it was actually the highest grossing movie of 1973, which spoke to how much it resonated with mm. uh, people of the time. And I think what makes this movie so interesting is is how it reflected fears about the breakdown of the family. I mean, Regan, the young girl, is raised by a, a single working mother. You know, the father's absent. Mm-hmm. And it also expresses fears about the, the loss of faith in religion. Now, what's interesting about this film is that it's not clear whether this is exactly pro-religious or is kind of more skeptical of the whole religious enterprise. Interesting. So, I mean, if it's pro-religious, it's like, well, she's been possessed by a demon because of a loss of religion in society or something like well, that. Well, she's also playing with a Ouija board, yeah. right, at some point, which is like kind of witchcraft. It's it's uh, heretical activity, and, and therefore she kind of, that's where the demon entered, I guess. Right. But if it's skeptical about religion, I guess um, some of the characters, some of the religious characters are largely ineffective in, uh, yeah. in battling it. <laughs> well, there is this sense, especially at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, or minor spoiler alert, I guess, that, you know, despite the fact that she was kind of exercised, it was successful, that demon is still out there, and they will be kind of haunted by this. Right, right. It's not like like she's been cured, but some lingering effects maybe. Right. Yeah. And that, in a way, the effects of the possession are much more than religion is capable of dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know, that these people are going to be traumatized for life, that it's going to strike someone else out there. And in a way, even if it does kind of signal that a lot of the, I guess, cosmology of religion is true, uh, particularly of the Christian religion, it does kind of suggest that it's not very effective anymore, mm-hmm. that the the forces of darkness, I guess, the evil out there is stronger than we can cope with. And that's that's a pretty foreboding message, I think. How old were you when you first saw The Exorcist? I was 16. I was probably oof, maybe 17 or 18. Yeah, I think that's probably a good age to watch it the first yeah. time. Like, How you, did it affect you when you first saw it? Um... I, it was really the the very genesis of my enjoyment of horror movies. Mm-hmm. It was really about the time I started watching them because I was just kind of a fraidy cat before. But I, it was it was one where I watched with a bunch of my high school pals, and we were all just like, oh, this is there's a sort of mysticism attached to it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like you know there are some works of art out there like that, like the book The Catcher in the Rye. There's something kind of some aura attached to it or something. And The Exorcist yeah. was the same way. Um, I think we watched a remastered version where there was some sort of shot that wasn't in the original theatrical version, which is yep. I think the spider walk down the steps. Yep. We watched the one with that, and that was a moment where I was just oh, that just <laughs> just gave me the the creeps, but yeah. 
yeah, I think we all had fun watching it. Yeah, and I think the fact that auteur cinema was big in America, you have New Hollywood and stuff like that, it allowed these horror movies to kind of be more expressive in a lot of ways. I mean, these a lot of these auteur-type directors, like I think William Friedkin is, yeah. they would go the extra mile to put in, like, you know, all sorts of subliminal imagery. There's all sorts oh, of, like, yeah. scary faces kind of... You know, stu- snuck in throughout the movie. Yeah, and uh, oh, I remember one in particular. Yeah, oh yeah, it just sort of just uh, kind of flashes on screen for a second, and you know, it is creepy. Yeah. It is very creepy. Yeah, as well as just the voice for Reagan when she's possessed. Mm-hmm. You know, they used a combination of different voices. I know they had one woman like smoke so many cigarettes, so her voice would be really groggy, mm-hmm. and they you know put a whole bunch of different effects on that to kind of really give it this sort of demonic sort of feel and i think that combined with all the you know kind of practical effects that they're using when you know chairs flown across the room and stuff like that it just really gave the film this feeling that you know anything was possible that this evil was like it 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 was so far beyond the campy sort of evil that you would see in in 50s and 60s horror movies you know yeah i'm looking at the the image there's there's a face a demonic face that flashes on screen very briefly in the exorcist but i'm looking at a still of it and it's just so very well framed yeah um and it just it's that's almost like the the picture the image is a work of art in itself right you could hang this up in a museum or something or some kind of pop art thing i wouldn't want it in my house no i think (laughs) i wouldn't either (laughs) put it above your bed right yeah sleep well (laughs) yeah right yeah and i think you know these sort of directors uh, one of the great thing about uh, great things about the 70s is that these directors were committed to kind of making horror seem like it was part of our society. Mm-hmm. You know, even though like possession is something that's kind of much more of a, it's not something that happens every day. It's not necessarily a realistic sort of topic to deal with. No. But the way that it's kind of portrayed is realistic. Right, I mean, there right. there's never a moment where it's like, you know, people in sheets kind of walking <laughs> around saying boo. Yeah. Or like, you know, mad scientists with vials full of bubbling chemicals or something like that. It's something where it feels like, you know, something recognizable with something kind of evil put into it. Mm-hmm. It feels like they, they snuck this sort of evil into our own domestic lives. Yeah, it could happen to you. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, yeah. you know, just looking at the publicity around this film, they claim that people were, like, fainting at screenings. Well, there was a famous story about a miscarriage happening during the screening or something like that. <laughs> and you know what? That This is still the t- the type of thing that still happens now and then. You see, right. like, this movie, is clickbaity headline will say something like, uh, read about the movie that's got people vomiting in the aisles and stuff and it's never true right it's never true but it's i love to hear it just because it's it's ridiculous yeah and and this was kind of an era where that was really starting to become you know a major form of publicity i think yeah right right um the next film on the list is another classic the texas chainsaw massacre by toby hooper 1974 it's about a group of hitchhikers, of course, that, that get kidnapped by a family of cannibals in Texas, in rural Texas. And I wanted to talk about this one because it really reflects the economic distress of the times. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Sawyer family, the family of cannibals, is forced out of a local slaughterhouse. They lose their jobs because of industrial changes, and they must literally kill to make a living. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that, I mean, these hitchhikers... 
you wouldn't necessarily hitchhike if you had a lot of money, if you had right. a car and stuff like that. But their their vehicle also breaks down too, which touches on the 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 oil crisis. There is no gas at the gas station. Right. So this film, in a way, kind of predicted the oil crisis as well. That would be – that's definitely something that is lost today if you don't know the context. Right. It's like, what? What do you mean there's no – what? If you don't know about <laughs> the the gas crisis or something, any kid watching today would just have no idea why there would be no gas at a gas station. Right. And I, I think this was actually done before the oil crisis really took hold. So mm. it was kind of a lucky break on Toby Hooper's part yeah. to kind of do it this way. But I think one thing that really comes across in this movie – is, you know, the the rural decay, the fact that the countryside was no longer this pretty sort of beautiful place you would go to get away from the city and the, the hustle and bustle of city life. You watch a movie like Holiday Inn from the 40s, mm-hmm. right? They go out to the Holiday Inn, which is in the country in rural Connecticut, to get away from the city. It's a yeah. place where people want to go. Now, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the 70s, the country is a foreboding place. It's a place that's run down, where nothing happens, where, you know, it, it's scary out there. You don't know who you're going to meet because yeah. the people there have been just so, like, degraded and their society just so run down. There are a few movies like that. The Hills Have Eyes and Deliverance yes. are another couple movies where the countryside is a no-go zone. Right. Yeah. It it really highlights the sort of rural-urban divide, mm-hmm. I think, that was growing in the 70s. When, once you start to have, like, a breakdown in, in social trust and institutions and, you know, kind of uh, group associations and stuff like that. What is it? Robert Putnam wrote that book, Bowling Alone, where he's talking about the fact that a lot of institutions which provided, uh, you know, social gatherings and stuff like that were starting to break down in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And people just weren't, they either didn't trust these institutions or they weren't, weren't going to them. And so with that breakdown in social bonds and in the social fabric, you get this sort of mistrust of different regions, of different sorts of people. And I think that's really well expressed in this film. Here on Cine Concerto, talking about horror movies of the 1970s, um, because in some ways, the 70s and the things that people were going through back then kind of reflect modern society today. And, uh, of course, Halloween is coming up, too, so you got to talk about some good horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking of distrust among society, I mean, there was a lot of studies coming out uh, about America in particular and just how, you know, people had really this angst this rising angst even before covid mm-hmm. where they you know they didn't trust each other uh there's there's not a lot of faith that things are getting better there's a lot of depression and and social and and mental illnesses out there so you know this is very topical i think today and it probably plays into our next film as well uh-huh Roman Polanski's The Tenant from 1976. Yeah, Roman Polanski, as we mentioned, no stranger to horror, doing Rosemary's Baby in uh, 1967. And Repulsion before that. Yeah, right. You know, he's just, he kind of became a master of that genre. And even when he wasn't doing direct horror, his movies always had a flair of horror with Mm -hmm. Knife in the Water or uh, The Fearless Vampire Killers and, you know, movies like that. Uh, He would also do in the 90s The Ninth Gate, which is kind of a horror movie. It's kind of a gothic horror movie in a yeah, way. Uh, yeah. I actually really love this movie, even though most people hate it. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of it. <laughs> yeah, I just love the atmosphere of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's returned again and again to this genre, which I, I find very interesting. And this film, The Tenant, is about an immigrant, Trollkovsky, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, who moves into an apartment where a woman recently committed suicide. 
And I think it expresses very well the increasing paranoia and mistrust of the 70s as uh, Trolkowski is repeatedly chastised by his neighbors and unable to really assimilate into his surroundings. I mean, I believe he's Polish and he's he's moving to into a French apartment and you really get this sense of like he's not one of them. He's not fitting in. And when they're complaining about the noise that he's making, for example, it it may just be an excuse to kind of tell him in one way or another, you're not wanted here, Mm. you know? Yeah, right. And that lack of integration is something that I think in the 70s really started to make sense. In the 60s, it probably would have made less sense. It probably would have been more about, well, he's just an outsider. Like, he just doesn't get it. He just doesn't fit in. In this movie, it's kind of more like, well, they don't want him to fit in. You know, they're not allowing him to fit in. Right. And it, I think it really becomes visible in films like The Tenet, the the fact that society is no longer really gelling in the way it used to. Uh, as well, just kind of like the the breakdown of, of identity as well. I mean, in this film, Polanski himself actually plays uh, Trolkowski, and you really get the sense of the course of the film that he's just losing his mind, losing his identity. I mean, by the end of the movie, he is starting to dress up like the former occupant of this apartment, a, a woman named Simone. And you kind of get the sense of, like, there's either something repressed in him or his identity is breaking down to the point that he no longer knows who he is. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in the 70s, you get kind of the darker side of, of the questioning of identity, the questioning of social mores and, and norms and stuff like that. Because in the 60s, it was very liberatory, right? You have the hippie movement and free love and peace and all that stuff. In the 70s, it was kind of more like... Oof, you know, I who am I? <laughs> like, am I uh, a coherent person? Do right. I have a coherent identity? And you know, what kind of institution can bolster that bolster that identity? Yeah, I guess that might be kind of part of the the cultural hangover of the '60s. Yeah, you know, if you're, the '60s is all focused on perception and things like that, and community and things like that. But if it all goes wrong. Uh, which in many ways it kind of did, then that's kind of what you're left with. Well, yeah, there is this kind of idea in the 60s. It's like, you know, drop out, tune in. I tune out. Tune out. Drop out, tune out. Yeah. Is that how it went? Uh, oh, no, no, no. It's uh, tune in, drop out. out. Something yeah, like something that. something like that. But the idea is kind tune of Tune in, like, turn off, drop out. Okay. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of the idea that you'll reach this higher plane of consciousness by, you know, doing all sorts of things, breaking perceptual and societal rules kind of expanding your consciousness in the 70s is like yeah but what you're going to become conscious of isn't pretty yeah (laughs) you know you're going to become aware of things but that isn't a good thing i think uh you know if you're talking about movies you can also see um in kind of similar themes would be carrie yeah another 70s one about fitting in because she's this is a metaphor for bullying right yeah right and also kind of her coming of age mm-hmm. as a young woman, too, yeah. right? With all the blood and, you know, especially at the end, right. spoiler alert. Right. And, yeah, that's a great example, too. And the next set of films we'll look at explored a, a different dimension of this 70s anxiety and p- paranoia. While the tenant explored paranoia and mistrust through the lens of immigration and the loss of identity, these films found horror in the human body itself. The whole subgenre of body horror really took off in the 70s as kind of like the free love era of the 60s began to curdle. Yeah. 
And really, the statistics of the 70s are are really staggering. I mean, the 70s saw the highest rate of divorce in U.S. history, a skyrocketing number of abortions, a much higher rate of rape, and an STD crisis that culminated in the AIDS epidemic. Oh, okay, right. So this is really a period where the idea that you could just kind of like not be in a traditional relationship and, you know, everything was free and open, that really kind of came crashing down. And, you you know, the statistics really bear this out. So it's no wonder that, you know, filmmakers were inspired to make these kind of body horror films, that they, <laughs> they found horror in the human body itself, often in the context of fraying family bonds and domestic spaces overrun by violence. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, the family is kind of falling apart as, as an institution. And, you know, relationships and love and all that sort of stuff, it's fraught with anxiety. Another factor that, that played into the body horror phenomena was actually pharmaceutical. First, the introduction of, of the contraception pill, right, which gave women more freedom over their bodies, but also kind of helped to farther decouple sex from, from reproduction. And, you know, it was sexually liberating, but I think a lot of people had anxiety over like, okay, well, now sex not is not connected to to making a family. It's something else. Uh, added to this, I think, was the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which allowed for legal abortions. So there's all sorts of angst over that. Uh, but we should also mention the uh, thalidomide scandal. What's right? that? That's a drug that that would had been around for several decades, but it was actually revealed to have caused birth defects. Ah, okay. And it took a long time. It was into the 70s when it finally was like acknowledged the full scope of this problem, right? So in a way, putting all these problems together, you have this kind of social milieu in which sexual liberation is tangled up with ideas of, of social and familial breakdown. Right. As well as even like sickness and and physical deformity. Yeah. And I I sort of wonder if the idea of the nuclear family is is one that has maybe long been an illusion. You often hear even to this day, conservative American politicians say things like it's going to tear families apart and things like that. But then it seems like. Families have been fraying for several decades at this point. Yeah. Well, it's – I think it, it goes back and forth, mm-hmm. you know, and there are periods of upheaval where institutions like the family undergo transformation. Yeah. And then there's periods where people return to kind of more of a traditional uh, way of being. Right. And there's an episode of Mad Men too, which takes place in the 60s where one of the characters is sort of, you know, trying to figure out how to appeal to the family that sits down to eat dinner together. And she asks the question of, does this even happen anymore? Right. I know it's just a TV show, but I, I thought that was really interesting that she was asking this and what would have been something like 1965 at this this time period in the show. Right. I mean, the nuclear family was never this perfect, stable thing that right. happened. It was always undergoing transformation. And yeah. It was always somewhat unstable. But I think the 70s was a period of, of you know, especially fraught sort of turmoil and stuff like that. Yeah. And you see this, for example, in films like Sisters, the Brian De Palma film from 1972 which is about a a French-Canadian model whose separated co-joined twin is suspected of a brutal murder. Ooh, okay. So the film has several shots of the twin's scars, and it really kind of focuses on the the kind of 
unseemliness of that, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it, it also features a, a dream sequence with a number of identical twins, a dwarf, a man with deformed hands. It, it kind of is a movie that really highlights physical deformity, uh, but it tends to kind of focus more on the psychological aspects of it rather than the specifically bodily or physical aspects of it. Sure. Uh, it's still very much a, a movie that uh, is is about horror of the body. Uh, I mean, William Finley, who plays the doctor in this movie, seems to be a hunchback mm-hmm. in the movie. It's never made apparent whether he is or not. But, you know, I was rewatching it recently. And it's like, yeah, it seems like he has a, a hump in his back. Right. It seems like it's a, a proto- body horror movie. Yes, yeah, in, right. in a lot of ways. And I think going forward in time, like say to 1988, you would see uh, director David Cronenberg really take this idea of twins. Mm. And, you know, he would explore that in a more purely body horror type of way with uh, Dead Ringers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That was one that I caught at the the retrospective over the summer that, right. that came out over here. I went to go see that. Yeah, that incredible was, film. Yeah, yeah, very good. I mean, you, you can't really go wrong with Cronenberg. No. Yeah. And you you see how, like, that topic itself is ripe for this sort of exploration, you know, where it's, yeah. it's sort of the perfect sort of topic for body horror. And Cronenberg, that's what he's known for with movies like The Brood and The Fly right. as well. So, I mean, that that is his niche was the body horror. And his son... Brendan or Brandon, I think it's Brandon Cronenberg, is right. uh, going into that genre as well. He had a movie that came out earlier this year called Possessor. Right, and he had Antiviral, I think, before that, mm-hmm. which I caught at the Busan International Film Festival. I actually got to meet him, too. Oh, good. Yeah, really nice guy. Okay. I kind of told him, like, listen, you're you're one of these people who's keeping this tradition of mm-hmm. really irreverent and, uh, you know, boundary-pushing horror alive. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh. Gee, thanks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. he's really humble and kind of down to earth, it seems. Nice. Uh, yeah, David Cronenberg is next on our list with Shivers from 1975. So, like, with Sisters, you see, like, kind of the family institution in crisis. You know, these sisters, it's not a, it's not a very healthy relationship. It's one that's filled with violence and terror. And with Shivers, you see that kind of go much farther. This movie is about parasites that begin to take over a a luxury Montreal apartment complex. And it has a lot of elements borrowed from B-movies. I mean, Sisters is a much more polished production. Yeah. It had, for example, Bernard Herrmann uh, 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 doing the soundtrack. Okay. And it has a lot of Hitchcock references. Uh, In terms of the cinematography, it's much more polished and and whatnot. But Shivers is a much more of a B-movie, much more of a low-budget sort of film. That's interesting to me because I think you could compare a movie like like um, The Fly to The Thing, for instance, which is another 80s body horror movie by John Carpenter. But I always got the sense that that Cronenberg was much more polished than Carpenter because Cronenberg has... Uh, Howard Shore doing his score, whereas Carpenter does the music himself. Right. Well, with with Shivers, he couldn't actually afford mm-hmm. a composer. He couldn't okay. afford Howard Shore. It wasn't until The Dead Zone, I think, that he could actually afford a composer. Right. He had the producer, Ivan Reitman, actually just find cues, you know, musical cues. Right. And, and drop them into the film. So the Ghostbusters like, guy? Uh, yeah. Maybe? Ivan Reitman. Is the, yeah. The Ghostbusters yeah. I think guy. it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can look that up, but 
Yeah, it was very low budget. And, you know, it's not that there isn't a solid vision here. It's just that he didn't really have the budget to to give the sort of production value that you see in like Sisters and other films from this this period. Uh, But what separates this from a lot of B movies you know, it has the mad scientist. It has like Barbara Steele, for example, who is a major star of, of B-horror. But it, it has really, you know, a lot of transgressive elements that make it, I, I think, a lot more shocking than a lot of B-horror, a lot more disturbing. And it was also heavily influenced by the science fiction of writers like J.G. Ballard and William S. Burroughs, mm-hmm. who's not exactly science fiction. He's kind of like... He's a beat writer, so he's he's writing about a lot of different things. But well, he's he's horrific as well. I mean, he has horror, he has sci- sci-fi, he has a lot of different genres kind yeah. of blended together. The Naked Lunch is is vile. It is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's one of my favorite books, yeah. but it's an incredibly disturbing read. Mm-hmm. And you have that sort of intellectual weight, you know, given to this genre. And I think that's how how Cronenberg always approached it. I mean, a Cronenberg film is one that deals with the elements, the motifs of B-horror, but it brings a sort of intellectualism to it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a clinician approaching the genre. And so it it makes it a a really fascinating portrayal. I mean, this movie was heavily condemned by uh, the Canadian media and many politicians in Canada at the time of its release because it was partially funded by taxpayer funds. Ah, okay. By Telefilm, I believe. Right, right. And, you know, ironically, it kind of became one of the most profitable Canadian movies ever up until that point in time. Because it it wasn't your typical B movie. I mean, it, it is genuinely shocking even to this day. Yeah. And the way he kind of explores how how the family can break down, you know, under duress. In this case, you know, a parasite. Uh, it it's really shocking. You just see like kind of taboos being transgressed yeah. or or cro- lines being crossed that you hadn't really seen being crossed in cinema up until that point. And you know, the effects are good enough that it kind of works. Even though it is so low budget, it's it's really a great film that holds up. Yeah, and that's that's the great thing about Cronenberg. I, I know it's interesting that you say that it's all about um, a lot of these body horror movies are about family and things like that. And I, right. I'm seeing a pattern too because the the movie that he would do in 1979, The Brood, is also about the family. Right. Right. So it is, and also Dead Ringers. It involves twins and things like that. So, you know, there is definitely a lot of um, kind of a, a family element to to it. Right. And and you get that with Rabbit, too, another mm-hmm. movie made in the 70s. And can we just pause for a second to talk about how much children are, <laughs> are you know, a staple of 70s horror? Yeah. They're just everywhere. That's true. The Omen and Carrie as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Brood is all about kids. Yeah. I'll even say, you know, The Shining, even though it's 1980, it's just... Just makes, you know, just out of the, the decade, but still, it's still part of that culture, perhaps. Right. There's yeah. just this fascination with, you know, children. I, I think specifically because, you know, children are always this kind of like representation of innocence for a lot yeah, of people. Right. And to have that be something where it's like, well, maybe they're not innocent. Right. You know, maybe they're like in the omen evil. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's how you make something creepy is you put two things that don't belong. So, for instance, a child is cute. A child holding a dead animal is creepy. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, and what makes it even more shocking and transgressive is that, say, with the omen, and this is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film, but at the end of the film, they have you rooting 
for Gregory Peck to kill a child. <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm watching this movie. Yeah. And, you know, it's Richard Donner directing. He would go on to make Scrooged and, you know, films yeah. like that. Comedies. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I, I want this kid to die because he's, you know, the child of Satan. Yeah. But you're also saying that sentence in your head like yep. you, you're rooting for a child to die. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he doesn't die in the film. That's right. kind of the, the big twist. But it's like, wow, what a thing to do to an audience to yeah. make them root for the death of a kid. I think uh, maybe that started off with Rosemary's Baby in the late 60s. Right, right. right. Just involving a, a newborn infant as this evil being. And, you know, uh, a focus on, on kids and body horror and things and, and the breakdown of the family would play a, a big part in the next film we're going to talk about, which is Eraserhead. <laughs> David Lynch, 1977. Yeah. It's about a man living in a strange industrial landscape who's struggling to care for a deformed child yep. that, that he and his girlfriend accidentally have. It's uh, not just deformed, it's uh, it's premature as well. Right. Yeah. And the baby is probably one of the most disturbing creatures ever created for film. I mean, Lynch has not revealed how it was made. Ugh. And I've actually read that he blindfolded the, the editor uh-huh. so he couldn't see how they were actually doing this thing yeah any scenes that it that were behind the scenes that involved them kind of like preparing the baby right the editor wasn't allowed to see i don't know if that's true or not but Mm. that's kind of a something i've heard the the legend behind it yeah and it's been speculated that it you know it might be a fetus of some animal or a skinned rabbit or something like that but it is truly disturbing it's really gross it's really gross it looks i can try and describe it um it is this lizard-like or snake-like creature that moves and it looks like it's some kind of animatronic puppet um and but it moves in a really lifelike way yeah it, it does it has it, its eyes blink and things like that and this yeah. is 1977 so it's not computer it's a, it's a yeah. practical effect it is some kind of me- a mechanism or puppet or something but it's um there's no fur or hair on it it's just it's totally skin but it's kind of got this slimy sheen to it uh yeah, it's very disturbing. It's really it's really gross. I did watch this recently and I never want to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can say of all Lynch's films, this is one that I'm glad I've seen it. Yeah. I mean it, I can understand why it's a landmark. Yeah. But it doesn't have that sheen, the the glamorous sort of sheen that you get with say Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive yeah. or even Lost Highway or yeah. Twin Peaks. I mean it just has you know, a lot of Lynch's films have contrast, light and dark. Yeah. And this is almost all dark. Yeah, right, right. You know? um, but yeah, he's he's trying to care for this baby and it doesn't stop crying, but it's not even a human cry. It's this animalistic sort of wailing it does. Yeah, and there's there's all sorts of bizarre characters with like weird kind of deformities and stuff. <laughs> like the man in the planet at the beginning, his skin is very bizarre. Yeah. The, the lady in the radiator too. Who's got these growths on her chin, on her cheeks. Right. The, the, the weird chicken that they eat <laughs> that just moves. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, there there were parts of this movie I did think were really quite funny. Right. Um, yeah, I think the chicken part is one of them. Right. They're, they're having dinner and it's just like half dozen tiny little chickens. And instead of them all taking a chicken each, he, the, the Jack Nance character, the main character is told he needs to carve it like it's a big turkey or something. Right. And it starts moving and then he pierces it with a fork and all this gunk comes out Ugh. of it. It's yeah. black and white. So, you know, you don't really know if it's blood or just... 
pus or gunk or something. It's just <laughs> either way. Either way, it's gross. Yeah, yeah. And the way that they they talk is really strange and detached from reality as well. Right. I mean, it's just so surreal. Yeah. As a film, my I, I gotta say, my favorite part of Eraserhead was um, when there's this bellhop who's ringing a bell to, for his boss to come over, and he just won't stop doing it, and his boss just storms in from the other room, grabs him by the collar, points his finger at him and just says, okay, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's such a strange line for that line. And, um, for that, for that thing to happen, he didn't say something like, knock it off, cut it out. It was just this, the, okay, Paul. Right. (laughs) Like, you know, he's threatening him or something. I'm just realizing now how much, you know, humor makes Lynch's films work. Yeah, yeah. Because if there w- weren't these moments of humor and sort of levity and, and just bizarre, surreal, like, what is happening right now? Yeah. Lynch's films would be unbearably dark I, sometimes. I agree, I agree. There's a lot of the humor that really does make it light and or at least a bit lighter, so to speak, that right. you can actually bear to sit through it. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, this movie really expresses uh, not only the 70s and a lot of the anxieties happening in the 70s, but also Lynch's own experiences. I mean, his his daughter, Jennifer, had recently been born with severely clubbed feet. Mm-hmm. So I think that was part of the influence for this, his anxiety over dealing with that. Uh, but as well, I mean, it was inspired by five years of living in Philadelphia because he started this in 1971. <laughs> and Philadelphia was going through <laughs> insane changes. Right. I mean, at that time, it's just like severe economic decline, oh, gosh. racial unrest, you know, protests, riots. Yeah. Um, the way he described it is that uh, he described the city as one of, quote, fear, insanity, Corruption, filth, despair, and violence, end quote. But then he adds, quote, it gave me a lot of ideas and a certain way of seeing things. My God, that's what you get for living in Philadelphia for five years as a racer head. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard stories like he, I think he got his house broken into. He was living with his his wife and child at the time. He got his house broken into several times. And he used to carry a stick with nails on oh, it oh, wow. when he went walking around the street oh, wow. just as like a protective sort of yeah. device. And, you know, Lynch is not one to be like super involved in politics or to make like mm-hmm. overtly political films. But, I mean, if you look at Philadelphia at that time, it really was a microcosm of, of U.S. urbanization because you had like the Great Migration where you had a lot of African-Americans from the south moving north into cities Cities that were undergoing severe economic decline and, you know, the beginnings of deindustrialization. So you have people moving into places where there's less jobs and crumbling infrastructure. You also have white flight where you have a lot of, you know, the the wealthier white residents moving to the suburbs. Mm. So you have these factors combining. Then you have like racial unrest and protests that just it's it's this powder keg. Yeah. You know, it all kind of comes together into this this thing. That I think Lynch captures in his own weird way in Eraserhead. And it's just, again, showing how the 70s and the horror movies of the 70s are perfect vehicles for their times. They, they really capture the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah, yeah. And we should mention, too, the, the amazing sound design of this film. I mean, whether you love it or hate it, you can turn off the visuals yeah. for this movie and listen to it. 
and understand almost as much as as when you watch it. And then you see him like kind of carry this body horror fascination forward with uh, like the Elephant Man. Yeah, not yeah. a horror movie, but it's exploring like what can happen to the human body mm. and and stuff like that. And then like I guess to an extent in Dune, right with mm. the the worms, the sandworms. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of. Um some body horror moments in Blue Velvet too, right? With guy, the ear, right? And the guy who's been who's been shot but is still standing is pretty gross, right? Yeah. Right. So yeah, I would never describe Lynch as a body horror kind of specialist, yeah. But there are definitely elements, and I think probably Eraserhead is his most body horror esque film. Yep. You know, definitely a highlight of of seventies horror and one of the most unusual films of any decade. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's weird even for Lynchian standards. Like, he never made anything that weird ever again. Right. And right. I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess because he, you know, he had to film it over five years. Yeah. Right? And he would, they would have to stop and restart. And Lynch had this paper route, apparently, that he was, you know, he would he would find a way to deliver all the papers so fast that he would have, have, have enough time to work in the film right. later. <laughs> and it's just such an amazing time because he's, like, he's using a lot of, like, existing architecture and stuff like that yeah, to film yeah. in. And, you know, using these amazing practical effects where... Apparently, the man in the planet at the beginning, um, they had a real hard time getting that stuff off of him. Oh, no. <laughs> because the way they stuck it on, I mean, Lynch was doing a lot of it himself. Yeah, right. right. It's, it's very DIY. And so, you know, you have this textured feel to it where it, it almost feels like a, a painting where you can kind of reach out and touch it yeah, at yeah. times. And, you know, Lynch, of course, was a painter, so that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, it does. Uh, but that is definitely the man. One of the most disturbing horror movies I've seen. Yeah, Eraserhead, and, and that's saying a lot for the seventies. Because I mean, like <laughs> the Omen, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist. I mean, these are some of the most disturbing movies ever made. Yeah, right, right, right. And then you bring in like, no, we're going to have near the end of the decade Eraserhead, yep. which is even more disturbing. <laughs> you know, on so many levels. Yeah, um, it, it was one of those um, movies where I thought this is just an astoundingly bad taste the whole thing <laughs> but it did make me ask the question is there such a thing as a horror movie let alone a body horror movie that's not in bad taste mm. well i think being willing to offend good taste or yeah. conventional taste is part of why these directors probably do what they do i know you know what i do appreciate it i yeah. do appreciate it um i'm glad i saw it i don't really want to see it again but i did really love the practical effects it's so very well made Right. So, I mean, I, I can appreciate it. And that's when I said, you know, when, when Mother came out at Biff a few years ago, I, I thought I was very distressing, but I thought it was still very well made. And I can right. still appreciate that kind of thing, even if I don't really want to watch the movies again. Right. Or like Pasolini's Sallow, mm -hmm. right? That's oh, a movie God. where it's yeah. like you watch it once. You're like, all right, I'm glad I've seen that. I'm going to put this back in the <laughs> shelf or delete this file and never watch it again. Yeah, you right, know? right. And it's... Yeah, there are just certain movies like that. I think Gaspar Noe probably falls into that category a little yeah, bit. Yeah, right. Uh, what would you say to someone who's like, why are you, like, focusing on all this disturbing stuff? Like, why do you think this deserves to be mentioned and discussed oh. as something important? What, like the conversation we're having now? Yeah, like... Oh, man, I just artistic creativity. Right. Artistic creativity, pushing the boundaries of, of an art form. I mean, they, no one was doing stuff like this in the 40, 50 years 
plus of cinema's existence beforehand. Right. This is so cool. And um, it's the kind of thing that you can appreciate even more now because of a lack of computers. Right. Right. This is all makeup. It's all sound. It's all costuming. It's all, you know, it's all practical effects. And that's what makes it even cooler. And I think that's really the appeal of this kind of thing is just the, the pure imagination and creativity of it. Right. And it's also like a canary in a coal mine, too. Right. Because all this body horror stuff is coming out before the AIDS crisis was well known. Right. 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 right? So like. Like, it's not like they're just doing this because they think it's fun or because mm-hmm. they think it's, you know, like, oh, we're going to push people's buttons. Mm-hmm. They might think that part of the time, but it also plays a social role. It plays a social function. I mean, this is telling people, like, no, deindustrialization, like, crumbling infrastructure. This is really happening. Yeah. And, like, there is maybe something happening with, like, this virus that eventually will become known as, as AIDS. Right. And in a, in a lot of ways, they're kind of like, predicting the future or at least gauging the temperature of society before it becomes well known yeah you know and i think that's that's another value of of cinema overall it's just another way of of making your point known the germans and the expressionists were had the same concerns about industrialization and you see that in the the form of um the giant machine turning into the monster Moloch in Metropolis, right. eating up a lot of people, and so you know, a movie like Eraserhead kind of has some of the some similar concerns. So the final set of films we'll talk about all take a unique and interesting approach to what author Jason Zeneman calls the monster problem. So it's this idea that monsters in movies tended to be less scary the more you saw of them. Mm-hmm. Think about like Boris Karloff or Vincent Price. Yep. I mean, once the monster is revealed, oftentimes it's disappointing. It's not scary. Yeah, you have to kind of really handle the the reveal in a, in a good way. This is... What I think the, the movie The Conjuring does best right. is it reveals the monster really well, but then you don't really see it again. Right. And it kind of goes back into the shadows and and things like Alien are the same way. Yeah, yeah. And I think 70s movies in general really innovated, you know, important solutions to this problem, this, this monster problem. Whereas in the latest Alien movie, you see the thing in full like a wide shot and it's broad daylight and it just doesn't really do it as well. It kind of ruins the mystique. Yes. Right? On the one hand, uh, you know, there's a more general approach to to showing monsters and and showing evil, which is just to make it more ambiguous. I mean, 70s horror movies are less kind of good versus evil a lot of times. They're a lot more ambiguous, especially when you get into movies like, you know, The Omen, Mm -hmm. where it's like, is this kid really possessed by Satan or are the parents just going insane? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, or even movies like Carrie where it's like, yeah, she's been picked on, but do her classmates deserve to die yeah, because of right, that? Right. There's a lot more amb- ambiguity in these sorts of films and the sort of villains or monsters in them. A huge inspiration on 70s horror directors was the, the writer H.P. Lovecraft because he kind of – had this idea that the scariest thing out there was the unknown. Mm. And so he really tried to find a way of portraying monsters that gave you just enough. Like he would often kind of just give you shapes, but he wouldn't give you enough features where you could draw it into your mind and make it less scary. Right. You know, just kind of outlines, enough where you can fill in the details and it's still terrifying. Yeah, right. And that is something that I think um, is really something that connects to us on an instinctual level is the fear of the unknown. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why we're afraid of death. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think in, in 70s horror movies, a lot of the villains and the monsters tend to be either not revealed very much or they're hidden behind masks, you know, or they're from kind of like an unknown provenance. Yeah. Um, there's also less of a focus on like supernatural beings like mummies and Draculas living in remote locations. A lot of the monsters in 70s horror movies are in our communities. They're in our homes, in our families. They're, they're where we live. And I think that makes it a lot more terrifying as well because they, they are playing on the breakdown of a lot of social institutions. And that makes it kind of perfect, I think. That makes it much more impactful. So the first uh, set of films I wanted to take a look at today, Black Christmas, Bob Clark, 1974, and Halloween, John Carpenter, 1978. I always like it when these types of movies kind of cross holidays. Yeah. It's always great when you have a holiday that gives you an excuse to watch a movie. And, um, you know, Halloween is an interesting one with something like Black Christmas or The Nightmare Before Christmas and things like that. You kind of blend them together. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's another cool thing about the 70s is kind of the genre subversion and things like Mm. that. I mean— Halloween is the movie that I think that popularized the slasher film. You know, this guy kind of going around with a knife, killing everyone. Yeah. But it drew heavily from Black Christmas, which is a movie that a lot fewer people have seen. And I was kind of shocked at how much that movie inspired Halloween. Because I'd always considered like Halloween one of the perfect, most effective sort of horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Right? But if you look at Black Christmas, I mean, it's about a, a killer that stalks a all-girl sorority group. And he starts, like, making really creepy phone calls mm. and then eventually kind of killing them. And from this movie, you get kind of the the idea of, like, the POV of the killer looking at the victims that you see at the opening shots of Halloween, for example. Uh, you get the idea of, like, not really showing too much of the killer. The killer is kind of both mundane in a way. He's in our communities, in our homes, but he's also almost supernatural, yeah. you know, and the killer in Black Christmas and Michael Myers in Halloween both kind of have these qualities. Yeah, yeah. And that that the fact that you don't really see their faces or spe- especially in the case of Michael Myers is terrifying. It is. You just he, that's why the, the movie Duel, that Steven Spielberg TV movie works well, too, because you never see the truck driver who's chasing after the guy in the car. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it's really living up to that Lovecraftian ideal of mm-hmm. just showing enough, yeah. you know. And I know, like, for example, John Carpenter was very inspired by H.B. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. as was Dan O'Bannon, his frequent uh, collaborator. Yeah. And it's amazing because Bob Clark, the director of Black Christmas, claims – now, remember, this movie was released four years earlier than Halloween – He claims that John Carpenter talked to him and he said, if you were to make a sequel to Black Christmas, what would you do? And Bob Clark claims that he said, well, I would choose another holiday or celebration like Halloween. Mm. I would make it about an escaped mental patient. Maybe the guy (laughs) got caught and escaped from a a mental institution. Yeah. And then goes around like trying to kill like young girls or women in the community. Yeah. Yeah. And he claims that he told John Carpenter that, and then John Carpenter a few years later made Halloween. (laughs) I don't know how much of this you can believe, but it's amazing if it's true. Yeah, that is. That is pretty amazing. Um, I I, I do – there was something that someone pointed out to me recently, and I would be interested on your take, though this could be an entire episode of the Cinephiles Club in and of itself. Now, I made a graphic to – 
to advertise our, our Halloween special yesterday because Michael Garrett brought in a Scream Queen competition. Right. right. And someone, a friend of mine, pointed out saying it's really enlightening how we get so much entertainment from women who are being traumatized and victimized by at the hands of men. Right. And I think that's certainly true. It is odd, but yeah, I can't really explain it, but it is something that is kind of ingrained and embedded in our culture at this point. I think it's probably has to do with vulnerability. Mm. The same way that children are so much a, a focus of 70s horror is because yeah. they're kind of a, a representation of innocence. Yeah, right. Maybe that is kind of the more, um, the most vulnerable group, I suppose, that they could think of with someone like Michael Myers. Yeah. You know, I mean, aside from children, which... I don't know if that would ever really get greenlit by studios. Imagine Michael Myers going around knifing a bunch of kids. It'd be that's a bit much. Well, you do see <laughs> that a little bit in like the uh, you know in Shivers in some of the zombie movies like Dawn of the Dead. You do see kids like being violent. That's true. You, you do see violence against children in another Carpenter movie, The Assault on Precinct Thirteen. That's right. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's shocking when it happens. It's absolutely shocking. Yeah. So I mean, it does happen as well, and I think it's just another more extreme version of vulnerability mm -hmm. and yeah i think if you were to have like a killer attacking like a frat house of kind of like muscle-bound frat guys mm. it's going to be less scary yeah you maybe know? yeah I, that would be my first guess right as right, to right. why that that works or why that 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 happens yeah I, I think another cool thing about like black christmas and halloween is that you get like portrayals of young people especially young women just kind of behaving badly you know, like yeah. the, the young women in the sorority house, they, they're pretty like wild. Yeah, you know? that's that is also common in slashers, right? They're, right. they're almost like these um, these like lessons on morality, right? right? The two people at the camp going off to the woods to go make out or uh, go a little bit further and then boom, they're dead. Right. <laughs> That'll teach you to to mess around. <laughs> yeah, it's both like showing, I guess, young youth culture. Yeah. And also like kind of making you question if, you know, there isn't, like, if they don't deserve it right. on some level. Like, that old-school kind of mentality of, like, if you, you know, if you're bad, you deserve punishment. Right, That right. kind of Old Testament philosophy, I guess. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting that it plays around with both of those aspects, mm -hmm. I think. Um, can we just mention, too, quickly, the cheap William Shatner mask yeah. <laughs> that Sean Carpenter used for Michael Myers? Yeah. I mean, it's still one of the most amazing sort of props. Yeah, I think he turned it inside out, too. Right, yeah. and painted it blue or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but it is just a, a discount William Shatner mask <laughs> yeah. who played a... Captain Kirk and Star Wars. It's just amazing, like... Star Trek, excuse me. The millions of dollars today that are spent on making, like, scary monsters and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. John Carpenter's just like, $1.50, William yep. Shatner mask. This is going to work. <laughs> and it does. Yeah, I know. It's one of those things where if I were to make a movie or something, like, I'd do... Yeah, you know, what what kind of crummy thing just from there can we get? <laughs> but then, of course, it would just be terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of have to ha have a master like John Carpenter yeah. involved. I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and also the phone calls in Black Christmas, terrifying, mm -hmm. absolutely terrifying. He used, I think, like three or more different people. Yeah. I think the director himself was was recording some of the voices, and it. You know, at one point, one of the characters in the film says, "Could this be one person?" Because mm. he's doing like role-playing both himself, his sister, and his mother. And so it's like, how can one person do all these voices at once? Yeah. It's really terrifying. Uh, 
The next movie I wanted to talk about are the next set of movies are two kind of different takes on the monster problem, similar in a way to Black Christmas and Halloween, but also innovative in their own right. Uh, the first one is Jaws. Jaws, yeah. Steven Spielberg, you already alluded to Duel mm-hmm. earlier on. Uh, Jaws, I think, showed, number one, just how popular and mainstream horror had become by the mid-'70s mm-hmm. because it became the first blockbuster ever. Yep, that's right. This was the first movie that had things like lunchbox merchandise and book tie-ins and things like right. that. Right, yeah. and it's not like necessarily a 100% conventional horror movie, but it is a horror movie. Yeah, I'd And to have so. a horror movie be the first blockbuster shows uh, and I think proves – you know, something we alluded to before that in the 70s, horror movies were the zeitgeist movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. or was the zeitgeist genre. And uh, it also really popularized sharks. <laughs> I mean, like today, there's so many documentaries and... Shark Week. Yeah. Yeah. Shark Week on TV. Week of documentaries about sharks. Yeah. Uh, and it's largely because of this movie, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty simple premise. A shark attacks residents of a beachside town. But I think what really makes it work is something that wasn't intentional at all. We all know the story, right, mm-hmm. of Steven Spielberg had a, a bunch of mechanical sharks built. They were all named Bruce after mm-hmm. his lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and none of them really worked properly. That's why the shark in Finding Nemo is named Bruce. Right, right, right. it's a nod to Jaws. Right. Yeah. Huh. Interesting that Steven Spielberg's lawyer is, like, inspiring, yeah. you know, characters' <laughs> names for, for years to yeah. come. Um, and, yeah, so the, the, the famous idea with this is that the mechanical sharks didn't work, so Steven Spielberg was kind of forced to abandon a lot of the shots that he had planned of the shark. So instead of showing the shark, a lot of times you get, like, a POV shot from the shark's point of view. Interesting allusion to Halloween and Black Christmas, too. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the screen queens on our show yesterday was the the woman in the opening of Jaws who gets uh, taken down by a shark, and she's just thrashing around in the water. Right, right. And And doing a darn good job of it. Yeah, so you have, like, characters pretending there's a shark there. You get, like, you know, buoys in the water and stuff like that. It's alluding to this thing. Mm-hmm. Which really, you know, in in Jaws, this shark, which is a real creature. I mean, it's not some far-flung supernatural being. It's a real thing. But it becomes this, like, primal force, like this this mechanical killing machine. And I think it's it's kind of brilliant that Spielberg takes something that already exists but makes it this larger-than-life sort of force. And... Yeah, it's also important that it's taking place under the water, under the depths, kind of a place where we're not really, that's Mm. out of our natural element. That's also a fear of the unknown, too. Absolutely. Is the water. Yeah. You know, I I still, this is something that I think is probably instinctive as well, is um, I don't like going into the sea if I can't see in the water. Absolutely the same. I don't like not being able to see my feet in there, you know. There's just this idea. It's like, what could be down there? What could come up from under, you know, yep. the depths and you know where bite I me or something. where I grew up in the Middle East were stingrays, and uh-huh. we're always told to kind of shuffle your feet to kind of you know scooch them out. Right. But I still I kind of even I didn't even like doing that. It's like I don't want to go in the water if there are stingrays. Right. Right. <laughs> Especially if they're hiding under the sand where I can't see them. But right. I still kind of have that thought of like, oh God, stingrays under <laughs> under the sand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I could totally picture that because there is something terrifying. Especially if you're not a great swimmer. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which I'm. I'm certainly not. Uh, it's very scary just mm-hmm. not knowing what's down there. Yeah. And I, I think. 
Alien took kind of a similar approach with outer space because mm-hmm. it was originally pitched by Dan O'Bannon and the other filmmakers. Dan O'Bannon wrote it. He, he used to work with John Carpenter before they kind of had a falling out. But it was pitched to the executives, to the studio as Jaws in Space. <laughs> nice. Right? So yeah. this is 1979 when this film gets released. Jaws has already made an impact, right? So they're already drawing on the the influence and impact of Jaws. And I think a huge part of what made Alien successful is that it, it features the the design work of, of H.R. Giger. Yep. Who yeah. really kind of – all right, so if you're going to show the monster – You've got to show it in a way that doesn't give you enough answers. That still leaves it open to a lot of mystery. Yeah, right. Like showing just part of the monster or something so you don't get the full scope of what it actually looks like. And when you do see it and you see parts of it, it should be like, what could this thing be? Mm. And Giger uh, was also inspired by H.P. Lovecraft to to kind of design this this sort of creature, the Xenomorphs. Well, it's also in his name, H.P. Lovecraft, H.R. Geiger, Giger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um, it's an incredible creation. And I think it kind of is, is almost the perfect balance of the monster problem. Cause you're showing it, you have this, this awesome design. It's not happening due to a lack of money or, you know, mechanical failures, but seeing it doesn't, you know, quell any of the fear you have for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just looking at his designs, I mean, a lot of the inspiration for it, I think, was came from the fact that that uh, Giger worked on Dune, Jodorowsky's Dune, before it kind of fell apart. Right, right. Right. So he had all these ideas in mind, and he, you know, had already created a lot of uh, art that that Ridley Scott was inspired by. So he ended up designing the the creatures themselves, the xenomorphs, but also a lot of the sets. And they have these this kind of biomechanical aesthetic, that's what Giger calls it, where it's both, you know, biological but mechanical. It's something that you could Im- imagine. Are you talking about the xeno- xenomorphs or the like the robots in it? Uh, the xenomorphs, okay. as well as just the the, the landscapes, the sets, because yeah. the sets are very immersive, right? Yeah, that's true. It does always kind of look like the aliens are sort of connected by these wires or something, but Predator is also the kind of the same way. That's right, and, yeah. I, you know, Predator was, was I'm sure, inspired by Alien. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually looking at how he built the xenomorphs, apparently he used, you know, car parts. He used a real human skull mm-hmm. for part of it as well, like snake bones. It's just like a real fusion of mm. of biological matter and and you know technology yeah and it's terrifying it is yeah and uh it's it's done really well where um where i yeah you never see the xenomorphs the xenomorphs full body or anything i right. think the first big reveal is kind of his face and his two hands kind of coming out and of course you see the little baby come out of the guy's stomach yeah um <laughs> yeah which is both like now it's kind of a bad effect, but it mm. still works. Because it is real. It's a real yeah. thing. No, I, I think the when when this kind of wriggling around in the guy's stomach and bursts out is cool. But it, it, yeah, you, later it kind of looks like it's just sort of this thing that someone's just tugging on a string just yeah. to move along. And that looks a bit fake. But it's, yeah, the actual, when you see the belly move and stuff, it's really gross. Oh, yeah. And I just love the fact that they're using a real physical thing mm-hmm. and not like CGI or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really cool. 
So it, it proves, I guess, you go full circle, like beginning and, and going into the mid-90s where you kind of just suggest something, where at the end, or not 90s, 70s, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the 70s, you you kind of suggest this, this shape, this thing, this outline of a monster. And by the end of, of the 70s, you can actually show this monster that's still terrifying. Uh, of course, a movie that did this early on before even the 70s uh, took place was uh, Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. where you, you don't even really see the baby, but you you can imagine how terrifying it is. Yeah, Maya Farrow's reaction to the baby is much scarier than I think what they could have done in on film. You know what I mean? Oh, I can still remember seeing that as like a 13 or 14 year old and just being yeah. like, I can't watch the TV. I can't <laughs> see that thing. This is going to be too scary. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, I, I was about maybe the same age, maybe not 13. I was maybe about 15 when I saw Rosemary's baby for the first time, 15 or 16. And right. Yeah. No, it's, it made a big impression there. There's something about, um, a really great face for horror and people like Mia Farrow had it in Rosemary's baby, Shelley Duvall for the shining. Yeah. Whoever plays the mom in Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer's mother has it. It's just it's, it's a in, grace. It's, a brisky it's all in the eyes. It's yeah. all in the eyes. You know. Yeah. You got to make it believable, and you got to make it big. Right. You know? Right. And yeah. they do it. They do it. Definitely. Right. I wanted to ask you. We've talked about all these horror movies from the '70s. What do you think they can teach us about our own time? Oh, well, I think a lot of these movies have metaphor strongly attached to them right right and i think that is i think when horror movie is horror movies are at their very strongest right yeah and i think that's what makes the the new ones uh the new ones so good too so i guess what it can tell us about our own time is that maybe there's really something to say that can only be said with horror and that's why i think horror in the early 2000s or like early to late 2000s or so all that those torture movies and stuff didn't really do it Right. Didn't really do it because maybe there wasn't enough to say that couldn't have been said with other other genres, you know. So I guess that's what can be learned here is that there is really something to say in 2020 with uh, with horror movies. Absolutely. You got to look seriously at this genre to tell you something about what society is experiencing. Yeah. And with 70s horror, I think you get a lot of social breakdown with you know, the horror from the mid 2010s, like the Babadook and mm-hmm. Hereditary and movies like that. It's grief. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of grief, and I think there. The, perhaps it's also because there has been a more more attention paid to mental health in the the 2010s. Right. You know, just maybe a more at least in the West, and you know where uh, people are starting to talk about it more on social media and things like that. So you can kind of get into trauma and things like that. Yeah, and I think because it's much more difficult to talk openly about some of these things, horror becomes the perfect vehicle. Yeah. For a lot of them. Yeah, it certainly so, does. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Well, thank you very much for coming by with your trilogy on 70s horror uh, you know that kind of puts the cap on the Halloween season this time I think yeah yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah and uh, happy November to you yeah happy Halloween Boxing Day yeah. and uh, yeah happy November to everyone we'll see you again next week